Father, you are the God of the heavens and the earth. You are our creator. You are our sustainer. You are the one true living God. We praise you, Lord. We exalt your name. We exalt your son. We thank you, Lord, for our lives. We thank you for our families, our friends. We thank you for our church, Calvary Bible Church. We thank you for bringing us here together even this morning to worship you, to bring honor to your name, to lift you high, God. You are the Ancient of Days. Lord, I pray that our worship has been pleasing to you thus far, and it will continue to be so. I pray now, Lord, just for the preaching and teaching of your word, that you would help me, Lord, to be clear, to have great conviction, that, Lord, it would be done for your glory, that it would be the words that we will hear, that is, your word, your word of truth, will have a tremendous impact on each and every one of us, that it would be our desire to know you better, that it would maybe be your desire for some here even today to know Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that we will be blown away by some of the truths that we see and learn, and Lord, that we will be diligent to apply these things to our lives. We pray all of this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. In 1974, there was a Hungarian sculptor and a professor of architecture who designed a puzzle that became a worldwide phenomenon. You know what we're talking about? His name was Erno Rubik. And he designed a puzzle called the Rubik's Cube. How many of you have played with one of those? There you go. Just about every hand goes up. Became a worldwide fad. Over 450 million of these puzzles have been sold. Of course, they have even different kinds of the cubes. They have a two-by-two. The the most popular that I had growing up was a three-by-three. They even came out with a four-by-four. And if you were a total brainiac, a five-by-five. Now, we should be getting hungry because it sounds like we're talking about the in-and-out menu, right? It was fun to scramble them all up and then try and get all of the right colors on each of the six sides. I think the best I could do was the one-sided, you know, deal. I never got past that. Um, and while it may have been fun, if you know, for those of you that played with these, they also could be kind of frustrating, right? And a little bit confusing. But there were some folks that were so obsessed with them, they began to develop strategies and procedures to get all of the colors in the right place on those six sides. Now, by the way, it took the inventor one month to figure it out on his own. He didn't have some pre-planned deal. He, he had to figure it out like everybody else. Took him a month. They even have competitions nowadays to see who can do it the fastest. And while the average, they call them speed cubers, can do it in about six seconds, the world record is 3.47 seconds. 
I mean, I don't think I can get my hand to even do a turn that quick. And no matter how mixed up the cube is, it can always be solved in 20 moves or less. Now, as we said last week, under this banner doctrine of salvation, there are many other doctrines that start to come to the surface, that come to light. And as we're working our way through these doctrines, it's kind of like working with a Rubik's Cube. Sometimes things might seem like they're getting kind of mixed up. Or sometimes that, that they're even getting more confusing, maybe even before they become clearer. And of course, many questions will arise. For instance, and pertaining to our study today, if we are totally depraved, as we learned about last week, that is, we have absolutely no ability to save ourselves or even to come to God on our own, then the question should be in our minds, how is it we can be saved? How is it anyone can be saved? I mean, if the scriptures teach that you and I are completely dead in our sins and unable to come to God at all, how is it that God could even tell us to repent or believe or receive or have faith? I mean, if God elects and predestines some to believe, does that then mean that he also elects and predestines some to not believe? And, and these questions will keep coming. And, and these are good. They're good questions. And they will, they will keep arising over the next several weeks. But like the Rubik's Cube, though sometimes confusing, sometimes difficult, know this. Each and every one of your questions has an answer. They have an answer. We can figure these things out. These doctrines can be explained and understood. There is a path to figuring them out, biblically speaking, and in a satisfying way. And that is what we intend to do. Now, I used this uh, one illustration here a a number of weeks ago, but I, I wanted to bring it back and share it with you again, because as we proceed... Uh, in our studies here over these next several weeks, you need to be like a good airline pilot who flies maybe at night sometimes or flies in a fog, meaning you have to trust your gauges, right? Those airline pilots have to trust their gauges even when outside the window it doesn't look right. We have to trust our gauge. What's our gauge? Right here, right? The word of God, even when feelings tell us otherwise or or emotions or what have you, we have to trust the gauge of God's word. Your default setting must be to rely on what the scripture says. Don't rely on your feelings. Don't rely on on what you think might be true or or even what somebody else has shared with you or even taught you, but rather you must rely and trust on the accuracy of God's word. Let it be your your compass, right? I have a pretty good sense of direction and and I can usually always tell, you know, which direction is north and south, east, west. But but it's interesting though too if you if you had a compass and you try to go, okay, I think north is, you know, that way and you hold the compass out and you go, "Oh, it's really over here and it doesn't seem right." Right? It doesn't seem like that way is north. It really seems like that way is north. And 
Well, we have to trust our compass. We have to trust the gauge of God's word as we go through these doctrines in the coming weeks. So, the study of the sovereignty of God in your salvation got underway last week when we came to this text of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Go ahead and turn there and let's stand for the reading of God's word. Again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. The Apostle Paul writes this to the church at Thessalonica, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification, by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm. And hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, before we go any further with our Sovereignty of God study this morning, let's, let's acknowledge a few things here from our text. And we'll be coming back to this text over the weeks and, 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 and highlight some things and learn some things from our specific text as we use that as a, a jumping off point to go to other texts as well. But some of the things I want you to see here having to do with our study this morning, we have the first half of uh, verse 13, where Paul acknowledges that the people that he's writing to, the Thessalonians, are brethren. They're brothers and sisters in the Lord. They're adopted brothers and sisters, as a matter of fact. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Now, secondly, we also see from this text that that they are beloved by the Lord, these people. Agapao, agape love. These that are loved by the Lord are true believers. Romans 5.5 tells us that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, then the love of God has been poured out within your heart, signifying that you indeed are a true believer. Thirdly, Paul, Silas, and Timothy say that they should always give thanks to God for something. What? What is it that they are wanting to give thanks for? Well, the middle of verse 13 says, because God has chosen you. From the beginning, for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. That is a great and awesome thing to give God thanks for, right? If you've ever had somebody that you've watched and seen come to faith in Christ, and then, man, you just go, wow, thank you, Lord. Praise your name. I remember one young man. At our previous church where, where uh, you know, there were several guys praying for him. And he kind of would show up every now and again. And, and man, we're just, just praying for this brother and talking to him and sharing with him. And it took about a year. And a year in, he gets saved. And he was kind of a rough around the edges guy. Man, he just praised God. Thank you, Lord. It's just an awesome thing to give thanks for. <clears throat> now, this will be our focus for this morning. The fact... Of God choosing you, 
choosing you from the beginning for salvation. And this doctrine has a name. It's, it's called the doctrine of election. And as I said, along with it, we will also see several other doctrines. We will see this doctrine of predestination and a doctrine called the doctrine of foreknowledge. Now, let me just do a super quick review here because last week's message was imperative to understanding this week's lesson. Last week, we had an anthropology lesson. We learned about people. And the first thing we learned about people is that sin is inherited by people. It is, it is passed on, right, to us through Adam, through the seed of men going back to the fall. In fact, it's one of God's consequences for us that sin would be imputed or attributed to us. Secondly, we'll do a little bit of congregation participation here. How many people does this imputation of sin affect? All, everyone, every single person, every human being, right, save for one, the Lord Jesus Christ, has this problem of being a sinner. I got a question this week, well, what about Adam? Yeah, Adam had that choice. He could choose to sin or not sin, but then after Adam, right, Part of that consequence of the fall is that now all would be sinners. And remember, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Meaning, we are sinners from our mother's womb. We are sinners from the time of conception. And then, of course, we're born and then we, we choose to sin once we're born. Thirdly, sin brings death. It brings physical, spiritual, and eternal death. Can a dead person physically or spiritually make themselves alive again? Congregation says, no. Fourthly, we're slaves of sin. We're held captive by Satan to do his will. Fifth, sin causes our hearts to be deceitful and sick and wicked and evil. And the scripture tells us continually We saw that before um, uh, God brought about the flood. And he even makes the comment after the flood that that's still the way men's hearts are. Six, sin affects the mind by corrupting it, by perverting it. And lastly, we learn that sin has consequences, namely eternal destruction in hell and the lake of fire. And all of this put together becomes that doctrine of total depravity. There's a good definition in the evangelical dictionary of biblical theology that summarizes what the scriptures say about the sinfulness of man quote total depravity is the scriptural teaching that mankind is totally thoroughly and completely corrupted by sin in all parts of his being end quote good definition this is why i mentioned john macarthur likes to call it the doctrine of absolute inability because in this state you and i people can do absolutely nothing to bring ourselves to god or to save ourselves or be saved by god and and we said that that's some seriously bad news because we would all look at this then and with the disciples ask incredulously then who can be saved to which jesus replied that question The things that are impossible with people are possible 
with God. Luke 18, 26 and 27. Now, friends, we must be extremely clear. Again, your salvation apart from God is absolutely 100% impossible. Impossible. You cannot save yourself. Another person can't save you. Baptism can't save you. Nothing can save you except for God. This is why you and I actually need this doctrine of election or God choosing you. This doctrine, this doctrine, it should be soothing like salve on a wound or, or the neosporin that I put on my cut, right? Or aloe vera on your sunburnt body, that kind of thing. And once properly understood, this doctrine of election should bless your soul immensely because it explains how it is that you can be saved, how it is that you have been saved. Charles Spurgeon said this, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterward. End quote. Right? All right, let's go ahead and press forward and let's give a simple definition for this doctrine on the outset. And then you'll see how we continue to add to the definition as we go through our text. A simple definition for this, I I have turned to my trusty pocket dictionary of theological terms. I told you I used to carry around in my back pocket in seminary, basically. It's all dog-eared and I still pull it out. It says, quote, in general terms, election can refer to God's choosing of persons for a type of service... While in a more particular sense, and this is what we're focused on, election refers to God's choosing of persons to inherit salvation through Jesus Christ, end quote. Now, a lot more can and should be and will be said about this. But again, this is just kind of a good jumping off point. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered... When exactly it was that your salvation was wrought or or that your salvation became secure. And, you know, I think many people out there would say, well, yeah, when I trusted in Jesus to be my savior or or well, sure, when I believed in Jesus or when I received Jesus, or when I put my faith in Jesus, or, or maybe something along these lines. Now, it's not that these things aren't true. We would all say that at some point, if you're a believer, that yes, you trusted in Jesus. You believed in the gospel. You received Christ. You put your faith in Christ. But friends, this is not the whole story. It's not. I mean, just look at the emphasis of each of those phrases. I trusted I believed, I put my faith in, I received. I mean, there's a whole lot of I, there's a whole lot of me and my, right? Not a lot of he or him in those. So first, we want to consider that your salvation was secured in the near past, present, and future. This is our first point. 
It was secured in the near past, present, and future. Now, originally, I was going to spend a lot more time on this than, uh, than I'm going to this morning because there's just a lot of material I wanted to, us to, to try and get through, so you start whittling things away. I'm going to condense it. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, we see that salvation is revealed in the last time, referring to when Jesus returns, the second coming of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, Paul speaks of salvation as an ongoing process. He says, us who are being saved. In 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 and 2, it talks of salvation being when someone receives the gospel or received the gospel. And then in Romans 5, 9 to 10, it talks about how salvation was wrought at Jesus' death. When he says justified by his blood and reconciled to God through the death of his son. But then also salvation being wrought at his resurrection. We are saved by his life. His resurrection from the dead. So all that to say in these instances salvation is secured in the future at Christ's return, but it is also secured, you might say, in the present as an ongoing process. It was secured in the near past when you believed in Jesus, and it was also secured in the slightly more before past or further back past when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and before that when he died on the cross. Now, there's at least one more time when your salvation became secure And it's probably the most important time, and that's when you were chosen by God in eternity past. You were chosen by God in eternity past. Friends, this is the first step. It is the first stage which determines definitively that anyone gets saved. In fact, it's the first act of God in securing your salvation. And let me just interject something here. We're going to dive into some of the most obvious texts dealing with God's choosing and electing and predestining. Using his foreknowledge to call sinners to salvation in eternity past. And as we do this, I again can almost guarantee that you're going to just start having a number of questions kind of start to pop up in your head. And, And just know this, we're going to spend at least another week maybe two, I'll see how just study time goes this week, on this particular doctrine, because it is so important, and, it, and it's at times so misunderstood. So we want to make sure we take enough time, and, and in so doing, I'm trying to anticipate the questions that you will have, and we will try to answer all, all of those questions, at least, at least kind of the, the obvious ones that come up. Now, our second point continues to answer the question, when was your salvation secured? And it was secured... From the beginning. For this we turn to 2 Thessalonians. Well you're already there hopefully. Chapter 2 verses 13 to 15. Our text. And again we read. But we should always give thanks to God for you brethren. Beloved by the Lord. Because God has. What? Chosen you. From when? The beginning. For salvation. Through sanctification, by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you. If you like to underline your Bible, you can underline uh, the, the, the called right there. You can underline chosen. You can underline from the beginning. Then He says in verse 14, Yeah, it was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the, the first thing that I want to focus on here is the fact that God chose you. He chose you. 
The word means to take for oneself or to prefer. God took you for himself. He preferred you for salvation. And then when did he do this? From the beginning. Which then we would naturally ask, beginning of what? Right? It's a good question. And we're going to look to our subsequent points to help us answer. But notice what is not said about your being chosen. He doesn't say that you were chosen when you received, believed, or exercised faith in the gospel, or trusted in Jesus. No, no, no. It was sometime much farther back than that. Then in verse 14, we see that God also called you. And he does this through the gospel, the good news. Called is a word that we're going to see several times through the the epistles. And it's the root word kaleo in the Greek. It literally means an invitation. And specifically, an invitation to a banquet, as as in a wedding feast. Now, metaphorically, here it means God's invitation to the blessings of salvation. In the epistles, the called are frequently synonymous with the chosen. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 again. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has what? Called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, we might say that the difference between here God choosing somebody and calling them is that he chooses from the beginning who he is going to save. And then at some point in time, he calls the person to be saved through the gospel. So you might say one is about planning and one's more about the execution of those plans. So CBC uh, staff here, man, we were blessed on uh, Thursday. I think, it, yeah, Thursday. They call it Thankful Thursday. We were blessed on Thursday because some sweet dear members of the congregation nominated us uh, for for the staff of the week, basically through KKLA Radio, and we became their their Thankful Thursday lunch recipients, and they brought us lunch. Um, and and so in that sense, we actually were chosen. About a month ago for this honor, right? But then it didn't kind of come together until Thursday when we gather together and we eat and fellowship. That's when we were called. We were called to say room one to participate in this, uh, in this luncheon. It wasn't until Thursday that these things became a reality. They had been chosen in advance and then were called and it becomes a reality. And, and one was planning, the other was the execution of those plans. By the way, Calvary Bible Church was also blessed by a, a, a group that they were partnering with called the American Christian Credit Union, who brought us a check for a thousand dollars. A thousand bucks! They go, and we got something else here for you along with lunch. I'm like, lunch is fine, you know? And they pull out the giant check, you know, if you go on to KKLA's website, you can see us all standing there at the giant check, you know? Thousand bucks! So God's choosing and God's calling will continue to become clearer as we continue. Let's get on to our third point. Thirdly, your salvation was secured before the foundation of the world. 
Go ahead and turn in your Bibles. You can keep your Thessalonians. Well, I'm not sure if we're coming back to that today, but uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> Just back up a little bit there from Second Thess. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 to 6. <clears throat> this is that great and awesome text, the first Several verses of Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul is addressing the Christians that make up the church at Ephesus. He is writing, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, telling these believers what God wants them to know. There's no reason that we, in this case, shouldn't include ourselves with these Ephesian believers when he says this, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who, were, who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Basically, Paul's just giving them a, a greeting, this, this, this beautiful greeting from Paul. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So just pause there for a sec. Paul says that we should bless God because as Christians, he has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In other words, not only have you been blessed with salvation, but you have been justified. You have been sanctified. You will be glorified and you will live eternally with Christ. This is already a done deal, friends. It is a done deal, so says God. Every spiritual blessing that God can give you, he has already promised you, and it's yours. It's yours as we speak. It's not like something like, you know, a reservation type deal where, where you can lose the reservation. There's no losing of any reservation here. Your reservation is secure. Now, one of these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ is this. This is verse 4. Just as he chose us in him, referring to Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. I underline words like chose and before the foundation of the world and predestined in his grace and his will. Now, <clears throat> that word chose there, we have a different Greek word here for chose. It's this word eklektos, eklektos, which now means to elect or choose. And it can be translated either way. Uh, when Jesus returns... Mark 13 and verse 27 tells us, and then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect, eclectos, from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. So when we we speak of this doctrine of election, it simply refers to God's choice or choosing of whom he will save. Now, there's another word in here that uh, we need to understand its meaning. It's this word predestined or predestination. It's the Greek word proorizo, proorizo, pro meaning before and orizo meaning to determine. So it just simply means to determine before, right? Simple. 
for instance, we went on our vacation recently. You might say that we predestined our route to get to Iowa, right? We sat down and we planned it out. We figured out what highways we were going to take where and figured out our route. What we didn't predestine were how many rest stops we would take or where we might be staying for the night. You know, that place looks good. Let's see if they got any rooms, you know, available. Uh, We had also predestined to eat at all of our favorite Midwest restaurants. But what was not predestined was finding an old style A&W root beer hamburger place. Uh Uh-huh, in Iowa. You sit down and they have the old telephones and you pick up the phone at your table and order your food up at the front. Pretty awesome. So uh, yeah, I had my frosty NW mug with my my ice cream and root beer and oh, it was good, it was good. Okay, let's see, maybe we should wrap up, go to lunch and then we'll come back, huh? No, no, we'll, 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 we'll press on here, we'll press on. You know, we had predestined to attend our niece's wedding but what was not predestined at least from our point of view was the fact that she would get COVID and have to cancel so there you go here in Ephesians 1 and verse 5 God previously determined something namely your adoption as sons daughters through Jesus Christ referring to salvation because to say That we are adopted by God is just that. We become his. You are predestined. You are predestined to become adopted by him. We have three adopted children. And, and, And when we showed up for court that last day, when the judge signed the adoption papers, they officially and legally became ours. Now, of course, in our hearts... They were already ours, right, long before that. But, but there also had come a time where, where we thought we weren't going to have Austin and Janet. We thought state adoptions was going to remove them from us. And thankfully, that didn't happen. And finally, the day came when the papers got that final signature. And then that was that. And, and at that point, there could no longer be any threat that we might lose them or that they could be taken away from us because the adoption was now permanent. And that's the exactly the way it is with God, right? He predestines your adoption and then he sees it come to pass and it becomes permanent. You are his, his adopted children. Now, furthermore, verse four tells us that we were chosen by God to be holy and blameless before him. It's just another way of saying salvation, right? God chose to save us. And in so doing, We become holy and blameless. So the next question I want to pose then is, 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 again, when? When did he choose to save us? Now, this is when it gets really interesting, because here our text tells us before the foundation of the world. When was that? When was that? Genesis 1 tells us in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if that's the foundation of the world, then then this God choosing some for salvation had to happen before that. In other words, before time even began. We sometimes call this, as I mentioned at the beginning, eternity past. So in eternity past, God chose to save you, which also tells us what? That God knew you long before 
You knew you or anyone else knew you. God already had it planned that he would create you as a human being and even that he would save you. Now, you got to just let that sink in because that's a bit of a mind bender, isn't it? Right? I mean, that, that should just start to, what? Wow, just floor us. Skip down to verse 11 in the text. Ephesians 1 and verse 11. He says, also, we have obtained an inheritance. That's just a, another euphemism for your salvation and eternal life. Notice that this inheritance is something already credited to us, reserved in heaven for us. Then he says in our text of Ephesians, having been predestined, again, determined before, according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So there we see that it was God's purpose, it was God's plan, it was God's will that believers and their inheritance be predetermined, chosen by him, and when again? The context hasn't changed. It's still before the foundation of the world, before time began, before creation. To say it another way, before God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit created the heavens and the earth, God the Father in his sovereignty predetermined and pre-chose all of those in the human race that he would grant salvation to, which includes this inheritance and eternal life. This was done out of the kind intentions of his will, after the counsel of his will, by his grace, and for his praise and glory. Because remember, friends, going back to last week, We couldn't do this for ourselves. We never would do it for ourselves. God had to elect us because in our total depravity, like Spurgeon said, we would never choose him. And we think, yeah, and why would he ever want to choose me, right? Choose us. Therefore, all glory will go to him. You see, if we thought that we played any part in our salvation whatsoever, God knows that we would become boastful and we would usurp his glory. That's right out of Ephesians 2 and verse 8. Now, before we move on, I I want you to notice one more thing that speaks volumes about God's sovereignty in your salvation with this text. But just look how many times the personal pronoun for God is used in verses 3 to 12. In verse 3, it says, God is blessed. Verse 4, he chose. Verse 5, he predestined. It was his will. Verse 6, his grace, he freely bestowed. If you continued on with verse 7, you'd also see, in him we have redemption through his blood, according to his grace. And then in verse 8, he lavished, he made known uh, his will, his kind intention, he purposed in verse 9. And then in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, predestined according to his purpose, according to his will. And then in verse 12, to the praise of his glory. There is a whole lot of he, his, 
and him. And there is very little of you or I. That much, that much. God is the one who does these things. God is the one who saves, not you or I. That brings us to our fourth, uh, our fourth point. Your salvation was also secured from all eternity. From all eternity. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy. Just go now a little bit to the right. We're going to pass over Thessalonians and hit 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. This is Paul again writing to Timothy from prison. Again, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving Timothy some some kind of fatherly spiritual advice about not being timid in his faith. Because indeed, he's been given a spirit of power, love, and discipline by God. And he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us. There's that word kaleo again. It's an invitation. Saved us and called us with a holy calling. Again, kaleo. But this time it's a holy calling. A calling to be set apart as unto God for his use. Not according to our works. But according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. There's just great consistency here with Paul in, in, in these doctrines that he is teaching. Just a, a few quick comments on this passage. Again, we could ask the question, who has saved you according to this passage? God, God, and uh, who has called you or invited you to salvation? God, again, right? The blessings of salvation. And did God save you because of some good and glorious thing that you did? Right? You know, Johnny over here loves to give money to charities. Oh, yay, Johnny. And and and, and Mary, man, she's always donating blood, you know. She can barely walk because she donates so much blood. And, 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 and Costas over here would give you the shirt off his back. You know, we got Sabrina who's just, she's just a good, good person, always thinking of others, you know. No. No. He called you not based on any works that you have done or because you are some good, Grand and glorious person. So why did God call and save you according to this text? Because it was his own purpose and grace to do so. And remember, grace is God giving us that which we don't deserve. Do I deserve salvation? Of course not. Because I'm a sinner who can't do anything but sin. Again, totally depraved, dead in our sins, right? So then God granted us salvation according to this text we didn't grant it to ourselves nor did we do anything to earn it and when did god do all of this from all eternity before the foundation of the world from the beginning and when was this all revealed when jesus showed up on earth died was resurrected because that is the whole point of his coming you see, friends, God secured your salvation in eternity past based on what Jesus would do 
to bring it all to fruition. Fifthly, your salvation was secured long ages ago. Long ages ago. Are you beginning to see a pattern here? Turn to Titus. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Just a couple of pages over probably. Titus 1, verses 1 to 2. This is the Apostle Paul. Writing again under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Titus, who is pastoring the Christian church on the island of Crete. It says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus for the faith of those chosen, right? There's that word elected of God and the knowledge of truth, of the truth, which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God who did not lie promised when long ages ago. And again, just a few quick points. We see that God has chosen or elected some for the faith and the knowledge of the truth and eternal life, meaning salvation. And notice again, they haven't chosen him, but rather God has chosen them. And when did he do this choosing? Long ages ago. And Paul also reminds that this is true because God has said so and God doesn't lie. In fact, he can't lie. If he could lie, he wouldn't be God. And so when God uses the word hope, friends, you have to know there too that it is a promise. It's not hope like, oh gosh, you know, I, I hope we go to, uh, you know, the habit for lunch today or whatever. No, it's, it's rock solid promise. And another aspect of your salvation being secured that we also want to look at is found in first Peter chapter one. Go ahead and turn there. First Peter, just keep going to the right. First Peter chapter one, verses one and two. First Peter one, beginning in verse one, again, Peter also writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is writing to the persecuted church, believers that have been spread out all abroad. And it says, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, elected, according to the, oh, new word here, foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Again, this This choosing or electing by means of foreknowledge is in regard to salvation. He says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now, let's just stop here for a moment and make sure we understand this new term, foreknowledge. It's from the Greek word. You're going to know this word, prognosis. Prognosis, which means to know beforehand. It's the same word used by a doctor, right? To tell you what he expects will happen Based on his diagnosis. He's telling you beforehand what he believes is going to happen. Theologically, this means that God knew beforehand who he would save. Before when? Well, we've already learned, right? Long ages ago, before the foundation of the world, from all eternity, from the beginning. Now, it's easier to understand foreknowledge, I think, by talking about what it is not. Foreknowledge does not mean the following. Christians that don't believe in God 
predestining or electing those that he would say before the foundation of the world, they will often say this. Here is what they think foreknowledge means. They would say, well, foreknowledge is God before the foundation of the world, looking down through the tunnels of time to see who is going to believe in him, who's going to repent, who's going to trust and, and have faith in the gospel. And then when he sees who will believe, then he decides in eternity past, okay, great, I'll elect them for salvation. Sounds kind of strange, right? Then, then, then he predestines, elects, and chooses them. So imagine, just for instance, imagine God in eternity past, he's doing this. He's looking down into the future, and he's looking to 2022. And he sees this young man named Armin, who, who Ar- Armin is going to be in church, and he's going to hear the gospel, and then Armin is going to exercise of his own free will um, a belief in God. He's going to repent and put his faith in Christ. Therefore, God in eternity past goes, oh, that Armin, I'm so glad he's going to do that. I'm going to go ahead and elect him. I'm going to save him. What's the problem with this? It's totally twisting the meaning of foreknowledge. But it also gives the power of salvation to who? Armin, right? The the, the person. And in fact, if Armin was going to believe all on his own, well, then frankly, there would be no point in God predestining, electing, or choosing him. There would be no point because Armin was able to overcome his total depravity and save himself. Another reason to know that, or we know that foreknowledge is not about God looking, you know, ahead in time or into some crystal ball as to what's going to happen in the future. We see just a few verses later in 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 20. Here, Peter is speaking about Jesus when he says this in verse 24. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And we know from other passages that Christ has existed as part of the Trinity for how long? All eternity. In other words, God did not look forward into, you know, the annals of time or his crystal ball and go, oh, oh, great. Oh, my son, Jesus, he, he's going to go to earth and he's going he's gonna to die for people on, on the cross and he's going to be the savior of sinners. Oh, I'm so pleased. I had no idea. I had no idea. Thank goodness, because I didn't know what I was going to do to get people saved. You know, what a surprise. This is wonderful news. That's not what's going on. No, Peter's text is clear that Jesus and what he would do to save sinners was known before the foundation of the world by God because God planned it that way. That's it. It's affirmed in Acts 22, or excuse me, chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Peter is uh, speaking to the men of Israel and he says, This man, meaning Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless man and put him to death. So the definition of foreknown or foreknew obviously needs to stay consistent between verse 2 and verse 20. It just means God knew beforehand 
who he would save because he was choosing them. He was electing them before the foundation of the world. And people that believe this wrong definition of foreknowledge are those that deny the sovereignty of God in salvation. Because they insist that they came to God of their own free will and volition or, or well, they think at least they helped or they assisted God in their salvation. They, these are people that have to believe that they had something to do with their salvation, that they played some kind of part in their salvation. And, and, and this is why, friends, why God chose and elected and predestined in eternity past before time and creation that so it would be 100% crystal clear that his choice of anyone was based solely on his sovereign plan and purpose. That it was not based on any sort of human works or human merit whatsoever. Charles Spurgeon, again, has explained that salvation eventuates or occurs not because humans will it in time, but because God willed it eternally. From eternity past, God loved the elect in consequence of his own gracious purpose, not because of any foreseen merit in them. Now, you might be thinking, hopefully something, maybe questions are popping up, you know. Okay, whoa, 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 wait a minute, though. Wait, time out, Pastor Jay, because, you know, what about all those texts that, that speak of us repenting? And texts that talk about us believing and us trusting and us calling out to God, us receiving. Yes, yes, we'll get to those. We will get to those. Um, another couple of questions that we'll tackle next week are why is it that God chooses to save some and not others? As well as this issue that I mentioned earlier, even of double predestination, right? If God predestines some to believe, does that mean he's predestining others to not believe and suffer the consequences of hell? Because that doesn't seem fair. Uh, Yeah, we'll talk more about fairness next week also. So here's some thoughts as we wrap things up here for, for, for this week. For those of you that these truths that you've learned this morning about God choosing and God electing and God predestining and his foreknowledge, maybe these are kind of new to you. Maybe these are new things that you're encountering. Boy, this week, just let these things swirl around in your hearts, in your minds, in your souls. Pray about them. Ask God to give you continued clarity and a a deeper understanding and knowledge of these things again trust what the text says even if you've been taught differently or believed something different and just remember that apart from god choosing you before the foundation of the world you would have no hope of ever coming to god on your own or being saved and this is why we had to start with that doctrine again of total depravity absolute inability so that we could all understand why it is that god would elect, choose, or predestine you. And, and for those of you, too, that, man, you're, you're grasping these, these, uh, these doctrines, you're, you're having good understanding, then just rejoice, right? Even this week, take some time to, to rejoice, Christian, that you were chosen by him before the foundation of the world, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Just just give God praise and give him thanksgiving for these facts and, and thank him for his tremendous love and his grace and his mercy and in choosing you for salvation and eternal life. Be in awe of these doctrines of God and his perfect and predetermined plans and also 
Let these doctrines humble you. Humble you, realizing it's all him and it's none of me. And you know, if you're still thinking, well, I'm not even sure if my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Then friends, you need to repent of your sins right here, right now. You need to believe that Jesus died in your place on that cross and that three days he went into the ground in the tomb until on the third day he rises from the dead so that you could know that that he is indeed God and, 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 and he is offering you that free gift of salvation and eternal life with him. As he lives eternally, so will we, so will you. And friends, you need to repent. You need to believe and put your faith and trust in Christ. You do that, and guess what? You know then your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's there. And remember, friends, One last important thing here, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go on. You and I, we don't know who the elect are. We don't know who God has chosen before the foundation of the world for salvation. What we're told to do is what? Share the gospel. Make disciples. That's what he tells us to do. So that's what you and I have to do. We can't get caught up in this weird mindset of, uh, well, since God is pre-chosen and he's uh, elected and all, well, I don't have to do anything. I just, yeah, just step away. You know, if he's going to do it, he's going to do it. He is going to do it, but here's the way he does it, is he uses you and I in the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring about these people's salvation, right? So we got to not, not, not let down our, uh, our drive and our, and our desire to share Christ with others. We have to continue to evangelize the lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for these just, whoa, tremendous truths about your choosing and electing and predestining us through your foreknowledge, God. And I pray that you will help these just to become more cemented in each of us, clearer to those that need clarity, that, Lord, it will not cause us to shy away from evangelism, but just the opposite, that we would have just this great desire to fulfill your will all the more. And that, Lord, if there's anyone here that needs Christ, that they would repent and put their trust in Jesus right now. Just praying to you, asking for your forgiveness, Lord, and for just that grace gift of eternal life. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.